Uh, turn with me your Bible this morning to uh, Psalm 34. Uh, Psalm 34. Psalm 34, and we'll read from the verse 1. You found the place. The psalmist said, Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me. Delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him. And delivereth them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life, and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil, and do good. Seek peace, and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. They that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants. And none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Amen. We know God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own infallible and inerrant word. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3 and I want to just read one verse. 1 Peter chapter 3 Maybe we should read three verses. It might be better for the context. 1 Peter chapter 3 We'll read three verses. First Peter chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 10. 
For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil, that just means hate it, and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now my text this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And my subject today is learning the true knowledge of God. Now let me put this text in its overall context. Peter is concluding his subject of submission. A subject that he started away back in chapter 2 verse 13. Remember he's dealt with subjection and submission in society. Thinking about the workplace. The relationship between employer and employee. And then he brought us to the subject of submission in the home, thinking of the Christian couple, putting the Lord first, second, and third. In other words, the Lord at the center of their lives. And the outworking of that, the Lord at the center of their lives, is their love and their treatment and their respect for each other. And now he's dealing really with submission in the context of fellowship in the house of God. Literally, he's saying, here's how Christians ought to behave in the house of God. Especially in the area of having fellowship one with another. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the five marks of Christian fellowship. Unity, sympathy, charity, piety, and courtesy. I'm not going to repeat it all. Last week, we looked at the marring of Christian fellowship. We thought especially of the problem of the tongue, the danger of an unguarded, unrestrained tongue, and the outworking of that in the church. Now we want to think today, finally, of what I've called the manual for Christian fellowship. And the manual for Christian fellowship, you know what a manual is? It's an instruction book. At the heart of that, is to learn the true knowledge of God. Now, now look with me at verse 12. Look very carefully at verse 12. I've read it from Psalm 34, and I've read it from 1 Peter 3, verse 12. And I want you to ask yourself, what does this verse 12 teach me about the living and the true God? John Calvin said, and by the way, he was not a cold, scholastic theologian. John Calvin said, the all-important thing in life, or, or in theology, is to know God in Jesus Christ as creator and redeemer. You see, the true knowledge of God is vital not only to the theology of the Christian life, 
but to the practicality of Christian life. We're not only to know God intellectually up in our heads, but we're to know God intimately in our hearts. We're to know God with a soul-moving personal power. We're to know God with a devil-defeating power. We're to know God with a sin-destroying power, but with a Christ-honoring power. Now, I emphasize that. Because I believe that that is part of the travesty today that's befallen true Bible-believing Christianity. I'm not talking about apostasy or modernistic or liberal churches. But in the evangelical church today, the theology of the Bible is clearly maintained. We can say, we believe this, we believe that. We believe another thing. We've got a sound, systematic system of theology. It's biblical. It's reformed. It's evangelical. But the truth is that in the broad Christian evangelical church that's seeking to be biblical and reformed, the truth is that we don't really know God as we ought. We haven't experienced the power of God as we ought. Why? Because while we have an intellectual knowledge of him, we don't have an experimental, intimate knowledge. And when I thought of verse 12, and I've read it a number of times, over and over again, just thinking of the words, let them come into my mind, I, I, I said to myself, here's a message of comfort for the people of God, a message of hope, a message of encouragement. But, but what's it all about, this text? It's about the Lord. It's about learning the true knowledge of God. And, and didn't Jesus Christ say in John chapter 17, in his great high priestly prayer, he made a tremendous statement, and this is life eternal. That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Think again of John Calvin's statement. The all-important thing in life, young people, men and women, is to know God in Jesus Christ as creator and redeemer. Now, I have a couple of things here from this text that I want to set before you. I want you, first of all, to know the God that works. You see, when you take the text as a whole, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. I want you to notice, first of all, that this is in the present continuous tense. You see, Peter is telling us that God is doing something. He is telling us that God is eternally active and God is very present amongst his people in the church. In other words, God works. God acts. 
And if we're going to learn about the true knowledge of God, I want you to know the God who works. See, here's a fundamental aspect of God's revelation of himself. From Genesis 1.1, right through to Revelation 22, he's the God who acts. The God who works. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's telling us about God's activity, God's intervention. And what do we read in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22? We read there in verse 19. And if any man shall take away the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. In other words, from beginning to end, he's the God who works. And when we read our Bible, folks, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is a God who works by his mighty power and by his sovereign grace and by his tender mercy. And God works by his mighty power, his mercy, his wisdom, his grace to bring to pass all his eternal counsel and his good pleasure. And all you have to do is study the lives of Adam. Think of Cain and Abel. Think of Noah. Think of Abraham. Think of Isaac. Think of Jacob. Think of Moses. Joshua. Think of the days of the judges. Think of Ruth, First and Second Samuel. Think of King David and the rest of the kings. Think of all the major minor prophets right up to John the Baptist, a man who was uneducated, yet he was God's man for the day, full of the Holy Ghost and power. And when we, when we study the lives of these individuals, we're seeing what? We're seeing the mighty intervention of God in history. We're seeing God works in and through these lives. I believe the greatest intervention of God in the history of the world is the doctrine of the incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's a tremendous truth. The God-man in our world. And see, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, think of how the Lord came upon 120 disciples in the upper room, men who were full of fear, Maybe ready to quit. Uneducated men at best. And God takes them up. Fills them with Holy Ghost power. And uses them to turn the then known world upside down. You see, the Bible in its history is a story of God at work. The God who works. Now, now, do you see that in the text? Because that's the first thing I want you to learn this morning. The knowledge of him. He's a God who works. Now, let me try and apply that. Um, many churches today stand like our own for the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. We stand for its inerrancy, its authority, its historicity, its sufficiency, so on and so forth. And if someone was to come into our church this morning and stand up where, where, beside you, uh, where, where you're seated, and say, well, do you believe that God created the world in six days out of nothing? We would say yes. Do you believe that Moses crossed the Red Sea on dry ground? And thousands or millions of people followed him? Yes. Do you believe the story of Gideon? 
300, defeating 1,000. The story of Samson, yes. And what about the miracles of Elijah and Elisha? Yes. And do you believe the miracles of Jesus? Now, come on, you couldn't believe that. It fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and a few wee fishes. Do you believe that? Yes, we do. Do you believe he raised the dead? Jairus' daughter? Yes, we do. Now, let me apply that. The truth is that while we acknowledge that, we have in our mind given up hope of God being able to work in our day and generation. You see, we have told ourselves God is no longer able to work in our day. We tell ourselves God stopped working with the apostles. We live in defeat. We live in a day of depression. We live in a day of dearth. And I just want to ask the question, in the days of George Whitfield, did he expect God to work in his day? The days of Luther and Calvin, the days of the Wesley brothers, did they expect God to work? Yes, they did. Were they wrong? No, they were not. Remember William Carey, the sermon here a couple of weeks ago, the motto of that man who was a missionary to India, attempt great things for God. Expect Great things from God. And you see, we have lost that. We're not tempting great things for God. We're not expecting great things from God. Why? Because we're saying, well, God no longer works today. I have heard the arguments. But it's the end time. Do you know it was the end times in the last days, nearly 2,000 years ago? The Bible says... In the last days, some shall depart from the faith. That was written almost 2,000 years ago. We get heard the argument, but there's no predicted revival blessing promised in the scriptures. Yes, there is. I believe that the greatest revival that the world has ever seen has yet to come to pass. You're saying to me, scripture, chapter and verse now, preacher. What about Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 14? When John said, A great multitude that no man could number, where did they come out of? They come out of great tribulation in the last days. Many sealing their testimony with their own blood. I've heard the argument, but what about the advances of science? What about the context of dealing with a modern man? We're no longer first century men. The modern man preacher needs technology. He needs gadgets. He needs to be educated. He needs to be scholarly. And, and I accept that. That is true. But I want to tell you, most of all, if you would listen this morning, what the modern man needs to know. He needs to know God. Because the modern man, like the first century man, if the first century man was a sinner that needs to know God, then modern man is a modern sinner who needs to know God. We need to know a God who works today. Let's drop off this mindset that it's all in the past. And the truth is that that mindset has filled many with the notion we're incapable of knowing the power of God today 
in the church. Of course it wasn't a new thing. It was alive and well in the 18th century. Do you know in the 18th century, in the religious life of England at that time, there was an evil, it was also in America, called deism. Now if you've never heard of deism, don't worry about it. Let me just explain what it sort of means. It's the belief that God made the world. And then he left it to himself. A bit like God being a watchmaker. He made the watch. And then just left it alone to tick by itself. In other words, he does nothing. In relation to the needs of the watch. And I want to tell you this morning. There is no place in true Bible-believing Christianity for a God who doesn't works. God works, and this is what I'm learning from this text. And God works in ways and in realms uh, according to his sovereign choice and eternal purpose. And God is pleased to use men full of the Holy Ghost and power to fulfill his works. Now turn over with me to one reference. I could bombard you with many, but will not this morning. Just turn over there to Isaiah chapter 32. If I have got it right, I hope I have. Isaiah chapter 32. And I want you to look with me at the verse 14. Yes, Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32 and look at verse 14. You, you could read the overall context. It's a tremendous portion here. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. Notice verse 15. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness be a fruitful field. And the fruitful field be counted for a forest. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness. And righteousness remain in the fruitful field. Do you see the words? In verse 15. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. In other words, God is saying in ancient times in the land of Israel, the country and the church there will remain desolate until the Spirit of God comes in power. And folks, that's true in the United Kingdom today. That's true in our homes. That's true in our lives. I'm well aware of the depth of apostasy in Northern Ireland throughout the UK as a whole. I'm well aware of that we live in days of great wickedness and militant atheism and um, manifestation of sodomy that's being legalized in various governments throughout the world. I'm well aware, well aware there's been a decline not only in church attendance but a, a decline in open outward profession of faith in Christ. But I want to tell you 
the God of the Bible is a God who works. He's worked in the past. He's at work in the present. He'll work and fulfill his eternal purpose. And God works among men. And he works among men and women who are in great need. Now the reference in 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 12 is, and his ears are open unto their prayers. If you correspond that with Psalm 34, it says his ears are open unto their cry. Why are they crying? Well, they're in deep distress. They're in dire need. They're full of trouble. Terror has come upon them. They're facing trials. They've got persecution. They've got opposition. They're full of weakness. They can't go on. And yet we're told that this God who works, works on behalf of his people in that time and in that situation. Now let me just bring it right up to speed. You could read, and I would encourage you to read, the life of the Reverend George Whitfield, written by Arnold Dallimore, two volumes. And think of the days just prior to the Great Awakening in England in the 18th century. Think about the moral and spiritual condition in England. There was godlessness. There was drunkenness, there was gambling, there was apostasy, there was attacks on the Bible by moralism, uh, by, by modernism. There, there, there was this spirit of deism that God had stopped working in the church. Churches had begun to fall out among themselves. There was infighting, there was fractions and party spirit again in the church. Unemployment levels were very high. There was great poverty among the poor and many were living in, in, in abject squalor. And this notion was spread abroad. What's the answer? Let's look to the church. And people were saying, don't look to the church, the church has failed. And what did they need? Oh, well, I'll tell you what they said. We need education policy. We need new hospitals. We need better housing. We need legislation. But I want to tell you, that's not what changed England. That's not what changed the country. I'll tell you what they needed. They needed God to come. They needed a move of the Holy Ghost. And that's what they got. Do you know God is at work today and carried off carrying out his purpose? Matthew 16 verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why does God allow this world to continue? Because God is carrying out his eternal purpose. And not until that eternal purpose was accomplished will Jesus Christ return. I believe today God is calling out his people. I believe God is saving his people and separating his people through the preaching of the gospel. And you know, folks, we can't blame God for our carnality or our deadness or our backbiting or our prayerlessness. Isn't there a definite relationship between power and prayer? I believe we were singing, visit us, Lord, with revival. True revival is born in prayer. The Kells revival, four men. The Lewis revival in the Isle of Scotland, two women started to pray. God doesn't bless prayerlessness. Prayer begets power. And I want to lay the axe to the root of the tree today. Here's the real reason the church of Jesus Christ is in the state that it's in. It's not that God has stopped working. 
It's not that, 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 that they're, they're, they're blaming God's side. We as God's people are not praying and seeking Him. This is a prayerless day. And because it's prayerless, it's a powerless day. Let's not blame the wickedness of the age. Let's not blame what, what militant atheism and, and militant uh, sodomy uh, is attempting to do. Let's not just bury our heads in the sand and say, oh, it's the end of the world. It's coming. Let's not say God doesn't work today. Because he's the God who works. And if it's the most important thing in life is to know God and Jesus Christ as creator and redeemer, then know that he works. Works on your behalf. Notice something else. He's the God who watches. Look back at our text. 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Now who does the Lord watch over? The righteous. That's a people who are in a right relationship with God. Are you in a right relationship with God today? Are you born again? Are you washed in the precious blood? Can, can, can you look to a day and a time when you receive Christ as Lord and Saviour? And you've been justified. That, that is legally declared righteous on the merits of the person and work of Christ. Do you know you've been adopted into God's family? Have you got a heart that's got a love for Christ and for his cause? Do you know that he's your shepherd and you're the sheep of his pasture? And no matter what happens in life, he'll not forget you. Because you're graven in the palms of his hands, you're on his heart, he carries you in, your, in his shoulder. He'll not fail you, for we read of him, he faileth not. He'll not forsake you. Are you among that company today? For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. He's making an argument, you see. Notice the way he watches over. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. In other words, he watches us constantly. He watches us continually. Do, do you know, and I've been thinking about this blessed thought, I'm under the watchful eye of God. I'm under the watch care of the Lord. Is your life full of trouble today? It's got many trials. You feel your life's under attack. The forces of hell are against you as a Christian, against your family, against the church. And you feel your weakness today. Let me give you another little reference that I trust will help you. Over there in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 we read, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. The, the, the word perfect there means whose, whose, whose hearts is fully committed. Is that true of your heart? God is watching me. Thou God seest me, Hagar said. But, but it's more than just the eyes of God are watching me. We're under his watchful care. His holy pure eyes. Searching me out. But his holy pure eyes that has me in his sights. And he cares for me. 
He notices me, even though I can't see him. Isn't that the history of God's people? And here he's quoting from, from the psalmist a thousand years before Christ. And he's telling us this very truth. What encouragement, what hope, what comfort for God's people. He not only works, but he's the God who watches. Is that true of you today? Notice something else. He's the God who waits. It says, And his ears are open unto their prayers. God hears the prayers of his people. It's assumed that prayer will be offered then. Because unoffered prayer cannot be answered. God's ears are open. He is leaning. He is listening for the faintest cry of his people. Let me illustrate from history. Remember the children of Israel? They were being persecuted in Egypt. This is after the death of Joseph. A new generation has arisen. And a new pharaoh's on the throne. And God says in his Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 to 24. I have seen thine affliction. See his eyes upon them. I have heard thy cry. His ears are open. And I am come to deliver thee. Out of their hand. There's the God who works. There's an outstanding historical example. And what the Lord did for the children of Israel folks. He does for us today. What an encouragement then to pray. Just the groan. Just the moaning. Are you here this morning and you're cast down? And you've got the, the, the hiss of the serpent in your ear. Uh, and this thought, there's no hope for me. There's no way forward. There's no peace, no joy, no help. There's a defeatist spirit. I want to tell you, God hears the prayers of his people. Go to God and tell God your trouble and your need. You can pray with confidence. We don't have to remain discouraged. And we don't have to remain defeated. Let's never tell ourselves... I'm beyond hope. Lift your eyes heavenward. Get your eyes in the Lord. Do you know what the Lord says to us in Song of Solomon 2.14? And I'll not turn to it. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Do you know why? He will answer you. And even in the context of our own little church, God hears the prayers of his people. We can pray. What do we need to pray for? Let's ask God for a move of the Holy Spirit. Will you do that this week? Will you pray for souls to be saved in our church and the community? Think of our family members without Christ. Are you praying for them? I've asked the Lord for five new families before the year is out for this work and witness. As the steelwork goes up, as the building begins to be erected, we need to see new families brought in. Will you pray along with me? Don't we need help with the building work? Don't we long to see the work going forward? Wouldn't that help us? Let's ask the Lord to hallow his name and do it for his glory. That he may advance his kingdom. Because he's the God who waits for our prayers. One final thought. And our time is gone. The God who warns. Now this is really a whole sermon in itself. Now notice the words. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. 
Let me repeat that. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And I just want to ask this question. Who are they that do evil? And I want to answer it in the context. They are those within the professing church. And they are those without the professing church. See, I've been asked the question, are these professing Christians who don't obey God? Are these professing disobedient Christians in name within the context of the fellowship of the church? And the answer is yes. And if you take the wider context, look at verse 13. And who is he that will harm you? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness sake. You see, there are a people who are outside persecuting the people of God. So there is a connection. Verse 12 connects verses 8 through to 11. And verse 12 connects with 13 and what follows. And it's quite obvious that Peter began his quote of Psalm 34 in verse 10 when he said, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him hate evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Do, do you see the connection? Who are the evildoers then? They're people within the church who have nothing of the Spirit of Christ. They profess to be members of a visible church. They're outward professors, but they're not truly saved. They don't really care for the well-being of the church. They, they have no heart for it. They lack the Spirit of Christ. And the evildoers, those who are without the church, persecuting God's people. And here's the message. Where the evil worker is found inside the professing church or outside the church, God's face is against them. And what are God's people to do when they face opposition from within and persecution from without? They're to do the right thing. What are they to do? We love life. We want to see good days. Refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no good. Let him hate evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And leave the consequences to God. This God who works on behalf of his people. This God who watches over his people. This God who waits for the prayers of his people. This God who warns. He will deal with every foe. That's it in a nutshell. God is for his people. And he will deal with every foe. Learning. The true knowledge of God. May the Lord take these few thoughts this morning. And bless them to your heart as I have tried to apply them.